0: Today, we'll learn how a mindful mindset can be really useful when trying to create a space for healing. And the most important ingredient when you're creating a space for healing is your own simple presence simple and yet not as easy to do as you might think we can do this for others as we lay the groundwork for healthy communication and we can also do this for ourselves for healthy communication with ourselves We'll explore this human ability we can develop with practice to sit with unpleasant thoughts and ideas and maybe people and to do so without letting them get under our skin. We're going to revisit some old friends, ego, and psychological flexibility. We'll review our own ability that we can cultivate to become aware of our ego habits and how these habits can get in the way of our own personal development. And building a better life, a more open and loving life. Amazingly, almost magically, it all ties back to the power of the present moment. And the relationship between present moment awareness and the domain of our thoughts and emotions. Our guest today is Neil Hughes. Neil is a seasoned psychotherapist and a longtime mentor of Claudio's. Neil has a wonderful paternal quality to him, and I'm excited for you to have a chance to observe how he creates a warm and welcoming space for his clients, his friends, and himself. So roll the interview. Let's get into it. This is Mindfulness Off the Cushion, the world's greatest podcast, <laughs> focused on teaching our listeners how they can cultivate a mindfulness practice that stays with them throughout the day. I don't have no idea why Claudio's laughing. Something's apparently funny. Welcome to Mindfulness Off the Cushion, Neil.
1: Thank you. It's so good to be here.
0: Absolutely. So Neil Hughes is one of Claudio's mentors from Knoxville, Tennessee. Claudio, introduce your mentor today.
2: It's funny because as he used that word, I don't think that Neil knew that he was my mentor when I was with him for hanging out with him for four and a half years. And I think first and foremost, Neil was a friend. I think that there was a friendship that, that started there as I was teaching mindfulness and launching this new business that I had launched in Knoxville. Neil was also a person that was championed behind the business. And from time to time, he would refer clients that he thought would benefit from the eight-week programs or from the day courses or retreats. And we kind of uh, would get together for lunch every month. And we talk mindfulness, we talk politics, we talk religion. Whoa. Um, Yeah, I know, right? It's like those three things that like, yeah. well, at least two of them that you're not supposed to be talking about, Neil and I would. No topic was off the table. You know, Neil just reminded me as well that when I applied to graduate school, he was one of the people that I asked to write a recommendation for me. And he wrote a phenomenal recommendation and I got into grad school and now I'm a therapist. And maybe I've never shared this with Neil, but when I thought of like a cool therapist, like the kind of therapist I would want to be, it was someone like Neil. Grounded, funny, smart, compassionate. So that's what I aspire to. Thank you. That's very kind.
0: Let's start here, Neil. If you wouldn't mind defining. What is mindfulness off the cushion to you? Mindfulness for me
1: is something that is only on the cushion when I want to practice. Mm-hmm. For me, mindfulness is living this moment. What is it? a dharma said? Zen is when you stop thinking about anything. And for me, it's that simple. When I, in the moment, am focused on what the senses can experience, and I'm aware of the flow of reactions and responses that are possible within me and in the other person across me if I'm in therapy session. If I am present there, that's life. It's not something I do. It's not something that is that is different than who I am. It is where I am truly who I am. Because all of those stories, all of those, all of those. Misinformations my brain tends to, to to repeat about me aren't active. So who am I? In my stories, I am things that that are not pleasant and friendly. Oftentimes, when I am present in the moment, mindfully with a patient, with my wife, with my kids, in a in my little studio here, I am really who I am. And in the flow, that creates something beautiful. So that, I mean, for me, mindfulness is not a cushion thing. That's mindfulness at the gym. That's fine. I, was, I, was, I think Shunru Suzuki once once said, you know, it's mindfulness is like um, riding a bike with training wheels. After a while, you don't need the training wheels anymore. So you can drop off all of those things that you've stuck onto you, and now you're living authentically.
0: I'm going to ask you one more question, Neil, and then I am going to hand it over to Claudio. But one thing I would like for you to do, Neil, is just to understand that part of our goal, our mission or our vision for this podcast is to empower, educate our listeners on how to do what it is that you just explained, right? Some of the easy low-hanging fruit, pragmatic how-tos on how they can take their training wheels off and live a better life.
1: I have some very, very practical and simple procedures I use. I teach my patients these simple things right off the bat. Because I know good and well, human beings are very skittish creatures. And we have dozens and dozens of fight-or-flight reactions a day, which we are not aware of. Causing us to live in tension in this society, incredible stress. So right off the bat, I teach them a basic mindfulness trick. Which has scientific verification, by the way. I, I, I like how it corresponds with science. I'm not, a, I'm not on the magical mystery tour. So I teach, I teach my patients how to calm their body the very first day. Very simple procedures, and, they, and they're they usually quite surprised when I do it. And then they say, you, I can't believe you want me to do this thing. I said, uh, do it. See what happens. Simple. I know that, like all mammals, when we get stressed, there are certain things behaviorally that happen to us. One of those things is our jaws get tight. And we may clench our teeth. We may grind our teeth in the night. <laughs> So the muscles in our jaws get tight. The muscles in our shoulders get tight. The muscles in our necks get tight. The muscles in our scalps get tight. Our shoulders, if we're really stressed, will rise with the muscle tension. So I teach patients to drop their jaw, and I ask. Them, and and I know, normally I don't have to ask them to, because when I mention it to them, I see them do it. So they drop their jaw. Listen now. Let your shoulders drop. Now, since I can't for the life of me relax my arms, I suggest that they put their hands on their laps or on the arms of the chair and relax their fingers. I don't use the word relax usually. I usually word release. Relax has a demanding quality to it. Release the tension in your fingers and hands. And then I'll say, Notice, notice when you do these things. Notice what happens in the facial muscles when you do this. When you drop your jaw, watch the fine muscles in your face begin to release too. And they go, Yeah. And they say, All right, now drop your shoulders and notice what happens in your neck. Yeah. So not only am I getting them to release, but I'm getting them to pay attention to what's going on inside their bodies. And then, Notice what happens when you release the tension in your hands. There should be a cascade effect up your arms. They go, yeah. Then I say, normally when we're stressed, our breathing gets erratic and gets shallow or sometimes rapid. So take some nice, long, smooth breaths. For the first five, a slightly longer exhalation. And I tell them, I want to help activate the parasympathetic nervous system so that you can enter a resting phase. Not only can you enter it, but you can actually make it happen. So you're not in enough. You're too stressed. So they breathe a nice, long, smooth breath. And by this time, they're usually sitting back and their, their heads are back and they're smiling. and they're I said, oh, one more thing. Just one more little tiny thing. Solid science behind everything I'm just saying. I want you to know that. Smile. It activates areas of the brain that produce feelings of well-being. We don't even have to think about it. It just happens. And I have introduced them to the first stage of of mindfulness meditation, which is the calming of the body. If the body cannot be still, the mind cannot be still. Yeah. Yeah. But this is something, and I tell them, you can do this everywhere.
2: Everywhere. It's funny because it's like, it's so obvious in some ways. If we can learn to relax the body, we can relax the mind. Most people come to therapy to learn a lot about themselves or to regulate a uh, particular behavior or experience that they don't want in their lives. And what you're saying is, first, let's learn to be in our bodies. And let's really approach being in the body. in this like really sincere, curious, kind way of just dropping in. And you're saying just by dropping into the body and in your words, releasing, are you softening, right? I love the word softening. Yes. Yeah, releasing and softening. And what's been amazing as I begin to engage in therapy with clients one on one in person is that this big light bulb goes off in their head that, my goodness, I can participate. In my own relaxation of body, Mm -hmm. they're so used to participating in their anxiety in the mind, right? Right. They're used to participate. They have that kind of, they know that they're responsible for that, but yet they don't know or gently exposing them to like this capacity that they have to participate in their relaxation of their body.
1: Right. And what I find oftentimes is it is so foreign for them to be in their bodies. And in their bodies in a released, softened way can be scary. Mm. A lot of folks actually genuinely are so attached to the stressful states they're in that when they get still, they get scared. Or they feel disoriented. Okay, So in therapy, we have to talk about that. One of the reasons I'm so high on this first step is because there's a, uh, I watched a, I watched a, a talk by Robert Sapolsky, the eminent biologist from Stanford. You know him? Yeah. Yeah. Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Yes. Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Excellent book. I watched this uh, se- this seminar on the history of treatment of depression And he said, basically what it boils down to, science is saying, is that depression is caused by a flood of stress reactions, which exhaust the system and make people feel helpless, hopeless, fatigued, and a lack of motivation. I think most of our psychiatric illnesses are tied to the fact that we are buying into a stress philosophy and culture that's uninhibited. I mean, we can, I mean, you can clearly say anxiety disorders are related to this. And then what happens? Our brains get hijacked. And we create stories. The shoulds, the mustn'ts, the have-tos. I shouldn't have done. I should have done. I, I wish I was. I need to be somewhere other than I am. So the mindfulness philosophy of being here now accepting that here now is all the here now you've got and all you'll ever have is here now and that you relax and soften into it and that it's always going to change. And so will you because yourself is not a fixed thing. So this kind of message to my patients is revolutionary and to yours too, I'm sure. A lot of my patients have never heard anything about what I'm saying. But when they hear about it, and it really doesn't matter what religion they are, to be honest with you. They don't come to me to talk religion. They come to me because they are so uncomfortable inside themselves that they don't know what else to do. Or someone else is so uncomfortable with them that they send them in saying, you got to do something. But when I give them these simple instructions with no, no philosophical tie, no religious reference whatsoever, um, they genuinely
0: resonate like tuning forks. Claudio, I promised I would shut up, but I have to. i i want to lean in lean forward in my chair a little bit neil i'm I'm sort of picturing myself now at lunch with you this is what i would ask you so when you you have these clients and i recognize it's not all of them but some clients who truly struggle with that fear or disorientation when you're mentoring them to drop into their body and they're like my body like right now you know For those folks who may be listening, or perhaps even for the therapists who might be helping them through that process, how do you mentor them to navigate what I would imagine would be very tumultuous waters?
1: Very good question. And in which case, I have to do my mindful thing and accept that where they are right now is the only place they can be. Which means I step back and I say, "Okay, let's just talk some more." I don't really know you that well. Um, What do you want to talk about? So what I do is I build relationship. If they can't do those simple instructions, although most people will try them, okay, then we step back. And you know, I am really not a fan of short term. Problem-oriented solution-focused therapy. Human beings are not that simple. Okay. I may I may put a band-aid on it for a bit, and maybe even a good bandage for a while. But if their philosophy is one and their brain is so constructed to create all these stressors for themselves, it won't last. I've worked with some people for seven or eight or nine years. And <laughs> gradually I've seen them develop. They say, oh, yeah, you know that, remember that little image you gave me of uh, of, a, of a stone falling in a creek, and it waffles back and forth until it finally rests in the bottom? I use that all the time, and it makes me feel so good. I say, cool. I mean, there have to be some times in your life when you feel good, right? Glad to have been of service. So, I don't have the expectation. That they have to do anything.
2: (laughs) There's nothing they have to do to be in my office. And I love that. I love that. uh, Like that reinforcement right there in that moment when you recognize that you're acknowledging that, hey, this person across from me may not be prepared to do To go there right now in this session or in this moment. And I love what you're saying here, Neil, because this is actually something that we spoke about yesterday, Lance, is that in those moments when perhaps the patient or the client is not prepared for mindfulness, it is in that moment that you yourself must summon and embody your own mindfulness practice.
0: As the therapist,
2: as a therapist to be able to accept. The present and let go of your agenda and let go of your story and like the mindfulness you know that you want to sprinkle on everybody let that let that go
1: you know there's different ways to sprinkle things when I practice mindfulness and I practice these these skills I introduced at the very start I practice them all throughout the day because what we do is can be incredibly stressful as we enter other people's realities. I do this and I breathe and I comfortably smile at them and accept whatever they say and however they are, so often I will hear, I just love to come here. You just feel, you just seem so calm and so comfortable. That is a way of sprinkling this thing, too, because their bodies are receiving the message through their mirror neurons and all those wonderful things. And they, if they feel in this relationship that that is happening, then that is a very different experience, and it creates, behind the scenes, a force, okay? not magical and mystical, but neurological, that they're really just saying, this is what we wish we had had from whomever. And it feels good, and maybe, maybe... I can try it now and be okay for just, just a few moments. That's, that's all.
0: Mindfulness Off the Cushion is sponsored by the Austin Mindfulness Center, the premier mental health counseling center in Texas for mindfulness-based therapy, education, and coaching. If you're an individual or couple struggling with stress, anxiety, depression, relationship issues, or you're just looking to better equip yourself to gracefully navigate these turbulent times, you can visit us online at austinmindfulness.org and request an appointment today.
1: There was a story I I just have to share. Go ahead, Mel, give it
2: to me, give
1: it to us. The Zen story, I love Zen stories. (laughs) <laughs> uh, the Zen master walks in and his disciples say, what is truth? And he says, how many of you know what truth is? And they go, you raise your hands. And he says, okay, how many of you uh, know what a rose smells like? And they go, oh. Now, describe it in words. Absolute silence. So the reality is There. So presence is presence is powerful. Presence is everything. It's foundation for any change.
2: Neil, let me ask you, um, you know, before we went live, you were talking about that. We asked you like, what are three things that you want to like talk about? And your response was, I got no agenda, man, <laughs> <laughs> which is like perfect response, right? No agenda. And you kept up, you continue to say that, you know, I'm kind of like semi-retired right now, guys. You know, I, I've been asked to do a lot of projects with people. But, you know, like right now, this time in my life, I, I don't want to engage in that, you know. So as you're talking about this qualities that you've cultivated as a therapist and as a person. As like a, a novice therapist myself, I'm curious, when you started out doing therapy... How was it for you? Like how compare and contrast a little bit of like who you saw yourself back then as and who you see yourself now as. I was going to save the world,
1: Claudio. I was going to save the world. For all we know, I Neil, was...
0: you may have.
1: <clears throat> <clears throat> well, look at the state of things, Lance. Yeah, well, let me know. At least we're
0: breathing. <laughs> we are
1: breathing. Neil. At least, at least <laughs> in my little studio, everything's good, right? No, I, I didn't know anything. I knew lots of things and nothing. Okay. I was trained in object relations therapy and self psychology and, and psychodynamics and psychotherapy. And insurance companies don't like that. So I switched to cognitive behavioral therapy, and <clears throat> something was just missing there. I've been through Ericksonian psychotherapy. I tried on all of these hats. Trying to find that something that could, I don't know, make my brand, so to speak, at this stage of the game, after 35 years of hitting up against the four walls before I found the light in the middle of the room. I'm in a place now where I realize I honestly don't have that much to say. And I don't know. Much. Don't put me in a position of telling people that I know all kinds of things. Because frankly, I I I I don't.
0: What is this? I don't know. How much of that is ego and the release of said ego? And how much of it is The fact that this darn world is so, you know, however you want to define it, but it's hard. It's hard for the average person to impact a change, to make a change. That's part of the question. And and secondly, I don't want to discount the fact that all of the change that you're helping with your clients. Perhaps you have said, you know, I can help these people. I don't necessarily have to worry about the other X number of billions out there. That's a lot of questions.
1: It's very clear to me that what I was all about in the early days is ego. I'm put in a position in which I am looked at as an authority. People are coming to me because there are things they don't know. Granted, I do know things they don't know. That is true. When I say I don't know anything, what I'm really referring to is I don't know inside of you what you need to do in any given point to get where it is your brain wants to take you. Do I know science about things? Sure. I love science. I absolutely love neuroscience. Mm -hmm. And I can share with you some things that will be very helpful, like the releasing techniques I described earlier and the breathing techniques. And It was all about ego. Honestly, we, we could get into a weeks and weeks and weeks long discussion about what ego meant to me and how I got caught up in it and how I would detach from it. And, and you know, kind of the adolescent narcissism and when, when I finally found that dropping off and how it affected my early years. Yeah, it's really not that interesting. And I don't know that anybody raised in this culture would, would be able to say that ego isn't a problem. Becoming aware of those ego habits, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, those habit energies around building a self that has some praise and fame attached to it or whatever, or money, not money in my field. Being aware of it, then I can, I can look at it and say, oh, there you are. There you are. But well, I'm not acting on you. I'm not, I'm I'm just, yeah, I hear you and I'll take care of you later. But right now
0: we're talking with Joe over here. So what's going on with Joe? I would almost define that as a superpower, Neil. And I'm not intentionally trying to uh, put you way up high on a shelf. I think we could all achieve this, but the superpower that I speak of, I'm much closer to it now than I was a year ago and two years ago but the ability to not let things get under your skin i believe is a superpower is it not
1: it's a human power that can be developed when you when you don't have any expectations then whatever happens is okay so i had a patient the other day and i you know this isn't to blow my horn this is to blow the horn of this philosophy of life and the practices that make this thing happen which You know, back in the day, I was as as sensitive as you can possibly imagine. But a patient brought his mother to the waiting room, and I went out and I greeted him and I greeted her. And I was, you know, and later on, he said to me, I asked my mother what she thought of you. And she said, he seems like the kind of person that nothing ever bothers. I said, that's not exactly accurate, of course. But that the reactions, I respond more than I react, I think. And if I can't have a proper response, I normally don't say anything.
2: <laughs> so I love this little journey that you took us through about like the the whippersnapper, Neil, the guy that wanted to save the world. And all of these different um, modalities and interventions that you've been privy to and used and not used and some were in fashion and now they're out of fashion. Right. And now you've landed in this, maybe there's like this little sweet spot that you've kind of cultivated for yourself that of of this this mindfulness based whatever you want to call it. You know, Lance asked me when you when you're working with your therapy clients, how much mindfulness do you teach them? And I go, Oh, it's everywhere. It's like the source. That I use to feed everything that I say or receive. So you being where you are right now, you know, near retirement, you say you'll work three days a week now and you have your grandchildren. And you've now discovered this sweet spot for yourself of mindfulness or where you feel comfortable with yourself and your work. Uh, like is 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 that like a do you feel like it's a a professional worth living or a life worth living that you've found this now it
1: would it would very much have been nice if I'd found it twenty or thirty years ago, yeah, but I didn't so apparently, well, I don't believe there's anything directing my path except I mean, except the forces that are around me driving all kinds of things, not personal ones I mean just What I've done and what was done to me and how I lived and my grandparents and all this, that karma kind of idea where I'm not completely, it's not, it's determined in a way, but it's not entirely determined. I can make choices. So I've been driven this way. and, And perhaps for me to be where I am now, I would have to have been where I was then. I think because I have been in this culture. Learning in all these different ways, trying out all these different hats, having all these experiences, um, experiencing anxiety, experiencing depression, experiencing guilt and shame and anger, physical issues like heart disease and several other things I've got. I can't see any of that as an entire waste. I just can't. I think I'm here now and, I, and I, I have a great sensitivity to people's pain because I've had it. Whereas somebody who is practicing this from age seven in some isolated area of the world or and then going into a monastery and being there and wandering around, maybe they don't know what I feel. Maybe they can't relate as much. I can't say they don't. Or I could take the other path and I could enter the realm of, oh, wasn't it horrible that you were like you were before? One of the things I'll point you to if you haven't seen it, uh, Stephen Hayes, the founder of ACT, he and his team over the last four years crunched the numbers on 55,000 plus studies into what makes therapy effective to find out what the variables were. There were three. One, awareness. And you know what I, I mean. The awareness of what's going on, what arises in me, the reactions, the re- all the possible response- Awareness is one and what's going on. The second was openness. To look at it, to accept it, to be present with it. And the third was to direct your responses in value-driven ways. Psychological flexibility is absolutely essential. So what my goal is with anything I do with a patient in my office is to teach them awareness. Like a a young lady who was in the office who was all caught up in all these circles in her head. I should, I should, I should, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I should. Over and over and over, uh, fueled by a little bout with uh, Mm -hmm. marijuana, which triggered anxiety like crazy with her. She was in a fog. My trick was to get her into the present. Okay, see what would happen. So she began I said, "What are you going to do after this session?" She said, "I'm going to go I'm going to go make myself some celery juice." I said, "Celery juice? Celery's like air with hair. I can't eat that stuff." <laughs> and she laughed, and she was in the present. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, "Then what are you going to do?" "Well, you're right about the celery," she said, "but you know it's good for me and I, I eat it and I I drink it, you know." Now I'm going to go jump on my trampoline. I said, like, as you're thinking about the celery and the trampoline, what are you feeling? And she closed her eyes. She said, I'm feeling energized. I'm feeling comfortable. So I directed her inside. I said, when you thought these thoughts, you were trapped in these circles, and you felt horrible. But when you thought that one, look what happened inside of you. Isn't that wonderful? So I want to teach psychological flexibility and awareness. So, and then I, then I asked the question, so based on your philosophy of life, which tends to be very much like the one we're discussing, said, so how are you going to direct the next behaviors you do? What, what are you going to think and feel about what's happening now even? Well, she said, I know, I know. Here and now is all you have. You can never be anywhere else than that. Um, Everything changes and flows. And you can direct the flow. And I said, yeah, remember? Remember how freeing that is? So therapy is about helping someone become in touch and aware of what's going on inside of them helping them to consider the different ways their mind can respond to different thoughts and feelings and behaviors and and places and people, and making choices based on the set of values they determine to be valuable. So it's not like I don't have a path. It's just, it's not always the same route for everybody. Same same ideas, different path. So and if it takes you if it takes you six weeks to do it,
2: fine. If it takes you ten years to do it, fine. Doesn't matter. Do you think that um from your perspective, from everything that you've seen in therapy in in the circles of therapy and in the industry of therapy, do you think that mindfulness is just one of those fads? Oh no. The science is too strong. Yeah.
1: If you've read uh, Richard Davidson and Daniel Goldman's book, Altered Traits, where they talk about the science and where they've gone with it and what they've discovered with it. with uh, I think at the time I read the book, around 7,100 research experiments are hard science. Hard science. Not ifs, not maybes, but hard science. No, I don't think, no, it's just spreading like crazy.
2: We're at the at the beginning or in the middle or the end, oh, I think we're at the beginning mm-hmm. here's what's going to die
1: what I can't remember who called it this, maybe John Kabazin. the Mick mindfulness stuff, the can the little programs you know that you know for stress relief, you know, do this breathing thing three times a day. I think that's going to die because it's not tied to a deeper philosophy it's I'm working with a teacher who has. Multiple sclerosis, of a horrible thing, comes out of uh, the tradition of the Church of Christ, which is very conservative, very fundamentalistic. But she's all trapped in anxiety and depression, so I to begin teaching her mindfulness, and she jumps right on it, and she's finding immeasurable amounts of freedom by doing this thing, which her church would call witchcraft.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Then she tells me she's teaching her children. In her classroom, because they're doing SEL, social-emotional learning, which is very, you know, provocative in a lot of quarters. She's teaching some mindful breathing, and the kids beg her for it. Yeah. Beg her for it. Can we do it again? It makes us feel so good. Wow. And so she sent me a picture. One little boy who sits on the floor with with his hands in the position, you know like a Buddhist monk might do or what he sees on TV. And every day he he folds his hands and he goes, Namaste. She sent me a picture of him or showed me a picture of him yesterday. And he was having a particularly hard day. So during recess, 25 minutes of recess, he found a spot in in the grass and sat in meditation for 25 minutes. Wow. In order to help himself. Yeah. Or today, she has an interesting thing. She calls it lying on the floor Friday or something like that. So every Friday, they lay on the floor and they do it.
0: They absolutely love it. But I'll challenge you, Neil. If I followed your story correctly, you introduced a small, quick mindfulness practice to a lady who then introduced it to her Students, and this one particular student took it and ran with it. So, if that's true, then if that little bitty program that she just grabbed it and ran with it and made the world a better place, is that McMindfulness?
1: That's a very good question.
0: Because we offer small programs, we'll meet you for lunch, like you and Claudio used to do, and we'll we'll give you the the groundwork to start your journey.
1: I think there's a very good differentiation to make. You know, and I don't have the complete answer for that. I think when I'm referring to the McMindfulness thing, I'm thinking of things they made well, you know, maybe that, maybe that, maybe that doesn't even make any sense. Because somebody is going to take a canned program and going to run with it. And some people will take a canned program, and because you introduce them to books about it, they're going to be reading about it and seeing the depth of it. Interestingly, enough, I know that makes sense. I, You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very skeptical of things done for commercial reasons. Sure. Right. I'm very skeptical of companies who do it simply because they want their, their employees to be quiet. Right.
0: That's McMindfulness right there, the corporate angle.
1: Yeah. That's McMindfulness. But what you guys are doing and what this teacher's doing is not. Interestingly, too, and it would be a long conversation on this one too. We can have another time perhaps. I live in an, in in the the buckle of the Bible belt. Um lots of lots of fundamentalist type and conservative Christians here. I have found ways to dovetail mindfulness, philosophy, and practice with their faith. I also have a Master of Divinity in, in Church History and Christian Theology. So I found a way to dovetail these things. I, and I have only seen one or two people refuse to go there. The rest of them are like the kids in the class. Can we do some more? Because I haven't felt this good before. So, no, you're right. I, th- I think, thank you for, for asking that question, Lance. That's a good question.
2: You know, in um, Alter Traits, the book that you refer to by Richard Davidson and Daniel Goleman, if I remember correctly, the way that they describe this whole notion of my- mindfulness, which is really talking about like um, a much more commercial and accessible form of mindfulness and mindfulness practices, the way that they talk about is two paths. That one can take out on this journey of mindfulness a deep path or a wide path. Oh. The wide path is going to be the one where it's like, you know, I think kind of like what we're living here in the United States right now, where mindfulness is made very accessible for short periods of time, it's commercialized, it's popular. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of like the wide path, just because it, it it can collect more people onto that path. And then there's in their description, there's the deep path, which is traditionally what like you know like w- w- the images that we have of the Buddhist monks, or if you go to the 12 day Vipassana retreats, mm-hmm. you know where it's much more dedicated, yes, much more concentrated. And also much more intertwined with an ethical approach to life and living. Yeah.
1: And that would be, uh, honestly, what you're saying is true for therapy. Mm. Because you can do therapy which is shallow and broad. Most therapy that, that works over time is therapy that's deep. And it really doesn't have to do with religion. It has to do with those aspects that Stephen Hayes found in his research: Uh, awareness, psychological flexibility, openness, and 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 taking a path according to your values, so you don't escape the ethical. I think a lot of the Mick mindfulness stuff doesn't pay attention to the ethical much or enough. And you're right. You're absolutely right. I think introducing people the way you guys do. And the way I would, if I were to say, give a talk somewhere is not worthless. Who knows what ripples that might create?
2: You know, Neil, for the last year, we've been working at the Austin Mindfulness Center. Uh, We have a corporate client that's um, invested quite a bit in mindfulness training. And the funny thing is that they're based out of Knoxville. Every week. I lead a group of 18 or 20 of their executives through a six-week program. And then in addition to that, every Thursday for 30 minutes, it's open to the whole company. They come in and we do a, like a 10-minute psychoeducation, like a little research, right? Just really short and to the point. Yeah. And then with like a 20-minute guided meditation. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I have to say that there's a different... F- Maybe this is not the right word, but there's a different flavor in therapy in that one-on-one. For me, so far, the little that I've tasted of it, it's um, a flavor filled with much more intimacy Mm -hmm. that I'm used to in the workplace environment. Yeah. And that intimacy is profound. It is profound. Mm -hmm.
0: Neil, thank you so, so much for joining us. Um, I feel like we could go in a hundred different directions and go super deep and it would be super fun. However, um, we do have a time commitment. And so as we wrap up here, if you wouldn't mind pointing our listeners to a few of your favorite resources, they can be online, they can be books. If someone wants to learn How to drop into their body if someone wants to learn how to start perhaps their mindfulness journey, awareness, psychological flexibility, openness, and then directing their responses to their value-driven ways. How would you mentor them?
1: It would depend. Some people would absolutely, and I've recommended Andrew Olinsky's Unlimiting Mind That some people, which is deep and some of the best explanations of the Buddhist psychology I've ever seen. Another one, a line line of that, of course, would be um, Jack Cornfield's *The Wise Heart*, beautifully written, beautifully conceived, and so clear. Some people would prefer the more practical, and so I may I may refer them to John Kabat-Zinn's *Mindfulness for Beginners*, or the one little book that started me on this path. 15, 16 years ago, my brother recommended I read Thich Nhat Hanh's Pieces Every Step. He said it revolutionized his life. I read it, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm not in Kansas anymore. This makes sense. So it opened my eyes very practically, very simply, very profoundly to the path of sipping my tea and taking a step. Huh? Beautiful stuff. Thich Nhat Hanh is beautiful, simple.
2: It's too simple. What? <laughs> Thich Nhat Hanh is like too simple. Mm, that
0: sounds like a judgment.
2: <laughs> no, 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 not at all. It's like when I hear him and when I read him, it's so simple that it's hard to believe that it's that simple. Yeah. Like we want this is where and this is where like the the ego and the thinking yeah. like we want to make this harder. Yeah. yeah,
1: I'm generally one of those people that like to make it harder. So give me some you know good old philosophy to you know, wrestle with and fight with. And I, I read Tetonahana and I, it's like a bolt out of heaven.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: it's like a Bodhidharma quote I, I gave you earlier that the Zen is not thinking, and I'm thinking you know not thinking is not easy. <laughs> if folks are scientifically oriented, the book Altered Traits is a wonderful place to start. If they're more, if they're more into psychology, I would go with Stephen Hayes' Get Out of Your Mind.
2: So you've given them recommendations for great resources, great books. Now, if you could share one reminder, a touchstone, a mindfulness touchstone, for them to carry with them to practice what would that one reminder be
1: there's one, one, one thing that i told a, a, a it was a friend he's not a patient he said so what do you what do you do i said well here's what i do i, I if i'm walking i pay attention to walking if i'm eating i pay attention to eating I, when i'm breathing i'm paying attention to that and i normally say in rhythm with my breath, something like, right here, right now. Right here, right now. Something simple like that, I, for some of the more, some of the more uh, philosophically minded, I might throw Shunru Suzuki at them. I love the story where he was talking with a young man who wanted to come in and become a Buddhist monk. And he's, you know, I want to meditate, you know, 16 hours a day you know what I'm saying he he said he said what do you want to come in to be a Buddhist monk for and he said I want to be a better person Shunaru Suzuki said might make you a better person might not frankly you're perfect exactly as you are and you could stand some improvement (laughs) Neil thank you so much it's an honor you're welcome guys so good to meet you Lance Good, good to see you Claudio likewise likewise
0: thank you sir
2: I want to thank Neil Hughes for sharing with us years of collected wisdom about the role mindfulness can potentially play in a therapeutic environment. If I can be so bold and reduce everything that was said in this episode to just one sentence spoken by Neil, it is the following Therapy is about making someone become in touch and aware with what's going on inside of them, helping them to consider the different ways. Their minds can respond to different thoughts, feelings, behaviors, people, and places, and making choices based on a set of values you deem important. Thank you, Neil, for making this so clear about mindfulness and therapy. As we look forward to our next episode, we are happy to introduce you to Dr. Carolyn Bushenko, a Canadian clinical psychologist specializing in the treatment of anxiety among children and teens. In this upcoming episode, we get to learn about the power of an oxytocin hug and the many ways parents can work with their children to integrate mindfulness and emotional regulation into their everyday lives. So, stay tuned for our next episode. And before I leave you, please don't forget to visit our website at austinmindfulness.org forward slash podcast where you can actually record a question for our podcast team. If the question is selected, we will address it and answer it in an upcoming episode.